Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. This week we are in a series called, What's the Point? Why bother with church? Simply put, Jesus is excited about building his church and God's people continue to be the light of the world. What we do and how we are different from the world makes the church essential to a society that is slipping further away from God. Listen to this talk and see how we are called to make a difference in this world. This past week, I went online and was just curious about the question, how many different religions are there in the world? And so I just Googled it, and uh, most of the answers were that there were about 4,000. Some said it's 4,200, but it was, most of them were in that, that area there, 4,000, 4,200. Different organizations, groups, churches, denominations, different religions out there. Some said it was higher than that. Uh, as many as 10,000, if you include the, the tribal groups, you know, small groups of civilization where they have their own religions, there could be as many as 10,000. And so there are a lot of religions, and they all think they're right. I mean, I think every religion thinks that they're right. I, otherwise, you wouldn't believe in that particular religion. They all think that they're right. They all think that theirs is the path to God, the right way to go or whatever. All religions would make this claim. Now, the problem is that they, they can't all be right. Now, these days, I think people have some interesting ideas about religions. I've heard these two ideas anyway recently and quite a bit. Uh, first of all, a lot of people these days say, well, really, basically, all the religions are the same. And so they try to make that argument. You know, religions are all basically the same. And I recognize that there are some teachings in the different religions that would be very similar, like the, the golden rule. Almost every religion would have a version of the golden rule. Do unto others as you have others do unto you. And so many people feel, well, they're just, you know, different religions, but they're kind of the same. The other thing that people believe is that there are different religions, but they all lead to the same place, to the same God. And so in this example, people would, would talk about a mountain, for example, and they'd say, well, one group's over here climbing the mountain, somebody's over here climbing the mountain, but eventually you all arrive at the same God. Now, the problem with those two perspectives, that really all the religions are the same or that they all lead to the same place or the same God, is that they reflect a lack of understanding about how different the religions really are. The religions of this world are very dissimilar from one another and in many different ways. Let me give you some examples. According to HuffPost.com, there are 33 million gods in Hinduism, 33 million. Now, you contrast that with Christianity, Judaism, Islam, that believe that there's only one God, and you realize both can't be true. Are there 33 million gods, or is there only one God? And who's, who's right about this? Who even decides who's right about this? And then the way in which the gods in the different religions are depicted is, is very, very different. I mean, you can have like the gods of the Romans and the Greeks who are, who are really depicted as being like fallen people or whatever. Or you can have other gods that are just different. For example, the God of Islam is not like the God of Christianity. Uh, within Islam, there is no concept called grace. You know, undeserved kindness that's poured out on someone who, who doesn't deserve it, you know? That's grace. It's the heartbeat of Christianity is grace. God shows his kindness to the undeserving, but that's not how God is in Islam. In Islam, you get what you deserve, period. 
And if something really bad happens to you, it's because you deserved it. And it's a cause and effect between them and their God. Everything good and everything bad, it's you just get what you deserve. I'm thankful that that's not how I understand God to be, that there's a God of grace. I mean, contrast that idea with what David wrote in Psalm 103.10. He said, he has not, God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. We believe in a God that even though we deserve punishment, will extend kindness and grace and forgiveness even though we don't, we don't deserve that. Now, it's been suggested that there are at least four questions that every religion should answer. There may be, I'm sure there are more, but here are four that I've come across over the years. Number one, and these questions, by the way, again, separate the religions. You begin to see that they're different based on these questions. The first question is this, where do we come from? This is a question of our, our origin. Were people created or were we procreated? You know, where do people come from? What is our source? What is our origin? Did we just happen to come into being? There are different answers to that question. Second question, what is the significance of life? This is a question related to meaning. And from the Christian perspective, we believe people are created in the very image of God, that that's where our worth comes from. We're created to be like our God and to reflect our God. And that gives us value. That gives us worth. But not all religions teach that. Third, how should we live our lives? This is a question of morality, and this is where there is some alignment between some of the religions anyway in terms of how you're supposed to behave. Uh, most religions would say lying is wrong, but not all. Not all teach it's wrong. Or murder or other things we would recognize, most of us. We believe, by the way, as Christians, that God has, has written his laws on our hearts. And so the similarities between the laws of some of these religions would make sense because God has put it within our hearts that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and we know this even before we're taught it. Even as children, when we lie, something in our hearts says, that wasn't good. I don't feel good about that. But there are some differences here in terms of morality. And then finally, what happens when you die? This is a question of destiny. And different religions teach different things. Is it reincarnation? Is it a resurrection? Is it annihilation? Now, the biggest difference when it comes to our destiny, the difference between Christians and other religions, is that most religions, maybe all, have this idea that the way you get right with your Creator is by being good. That the way that you secure your destiny, whether it be in heaven or some other place like it, is by being a good person. And so you stand before God and you say, basically, if your good outweighs your bad, that you make it to heaven. This is not at all what Christianity teaches. Throughout the pages of the Bible, we discover that all of us are sinners. We all fall short of God's standard of righteousness. That's the starting point of our faith. All have sinned. And that's the problem we need to solve. But a lot of religions don't believe that. They think, well, basically, we're all good. We're all going to heaven. This is not, not what's taught in the pages of the Bible. So it does get to the question, you know, who, who is right? And how do we know what's right? Now, the Apostle Paul had a clear perspective on this. In Acts 4.12, he said, there is salvation in no one else. He's talking about Jesus. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given to people, and we must be saved by it. Very, very clear. 
a strong statement here. The deliverance from the penalty of our sin, which is what salvation is, to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. Salvation is through one name only. So of the billions of people that have been born on the planet, there's only one person you have to turn to in order to be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. That's what Paul said, and of course we know it's Jesus. Now that sounds proud, maybe. It sounds narrow-minded, maybe. But if it's true, it's not proud. If it's true, it's not narrow-minded. If it's true, it is what it is. But the question is, why do we believe Jesus is the answer? Why do we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? And a follow-up question, and this directly relates to what I want to talk about here today, is that if it's true that Jesus is the only way to heaven, then what is our responsibility as Christians when it comes to telling people about it? Now, I'm convinced that most people in our country know who Jesus is. They know of Jesus. They do not know him personally. The people need to, be, need to be led to a place where they understand their sinful condition and they recognize Jesus as the answer and they say yes to him. Now, if we believe that people are rescued or saved through faith in Christ and we recognize most people don't know that, it should impact our desire to tell them. Now, people don't like that. You know, you shouldn't be converting people. Don't tell people about your faith. But if we care, if we believe it's true and we care, it's going to impact what we do. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 13, and 14. He said, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. But, he says, how can they call on him they've not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Do you see the argument he's making? People need to know about Jesus, but how on earth are they going to hear about Jesus if nobody tells them, if, if no one goes out? And so we feel that as a church, we have a responsibility to help people discover Christ and realize that through faith alone in Christ, we have eternal life. And I believe that this is, was the main mission that Jesus was giving his disciples or the early church right before he returned to his heavenly Father. You maybe remember the scene in Matthew 28. Uh, Jesus called together his disciples. There was a group on this mountain, a specific mountain. He said, meet me there. There was a group of over 500 gathered, at least according to 1 Corinthians 15, a group of about 500 were there, plus the 11 apostles. They all gathered. This was going to be the last time they were going to see Jesus. They didn't realize it at the time, but Jesus called this meeting. They're all standing there, and then Jesus gave what I consider to be their marching orders, and I think it's ours as well. And so he said in Matthew, beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 28, we read, and this was 40 days after he rose from the dead, we read, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Let me stop for a moment. But the ones who are doubting here are not the 11. Those guys all knew for sure. So it's the 500. It's the other people. So Jesus shows up, and some people just bow down and worship Jesus, which indicates that they believed he was God. But others doubted. And then it goes on to say in verse 18, then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. A, an amazingly 
bold statement. Nobody can make that statement if they're not God unless they're lying. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is why we have a passion here at the Ridge to get the message outside of our doors that people need Jesus, that we take this seriously, that we're to be making disciples in the name of Jesus, and then we baptize them as we do so many weeks. And then we begin to teach them what Christ taught about how we're to live our lives, what it means to be a Christian. And we take that as kind of our marching orders. But why do we think Jesus is the only way? Well, in the time that remains, I want to give you four main reasons why, from my perspective. There are more than four, but let me give you four reasons why I'm convinced Jesus is indeed. When he says, I'm the way, he's right. Now, the first one here is that Jesus claimed to be the only way, and I think it is important to acknowledge that he did indeed make that claim. And why this matters is, of course, Jesus is such a great teacher. Everybody recognizes that Jesus was an amazing teacher. And people even that aren't Christians follow Jesus' teaching, and so they recognize him as this, this teacher. Well, Jesus said some things that, uh, I mean, you either believe him or you don't. And in John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a bold claim again. I am the way. The way, by the way, is, is heaven, pointing to heaven. The question that the disciples asked Jesus prior to this is, where are you going? And he had told them, I'm going up to my heavenly Father. And then Jesus said, well, I'm the way. You want to get up there? I'm the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus Christ is the source of all life. And then he says, he adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the statement that makes this hard because on the one hand we say, yes, we know you're the way. But then he adds this exclusion here. He said, but if you don't come through me, you're not going to make it. And that's where people struggle with Christianity, the unique claim of Jesus to say it's Jesus or, or nothing. Uh, and Jesus said this in a lot of different ways, in a lot of contexts. For example, in John chapter 10, 7 through 9, uh, Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, and we read, he said, we say, it says, so Jesus said again, I assure you, I'm the door of the sheep. Let me stop for a moment, but anytime Jesus said, I assure you, it means what I'm about to tell you is true, true, true. Some versions even translate it, truly, truly, I say to you. Or King James Version, verily, verily, I say to you, anytime Jesus said this, I assure you, or truly, truly, I say to you, he was trying to get their attention to say, you're going to doubt me, but I'm telling you it's true. You can bank on this statement. And then he went on to say, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And will come in and go out and find pasture. Now, again, Jesus made claims like this throughout the Gospels. He claimed that he, he was the light, the light of the world, not a light. He was the light of the world. He claimed that he was the bread of life. He claimed he was the manna that came out of heaven. He claimed that he was the living water. And, and on and on, he made all these claims. 
And he said, what you need to do is you have to receive me, welcome me, accept me, put your faith in me. But then Jesus said, if you don't, then there are consequences because those who reject him face a different destiny. And again, this is where I think it's hard for us. But look at verses 16 through 19 of John 3. We're all familiar with, of course, John 3, 16. It's the most wonderful verse maybe in the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. If I, by the way, just knew that verse, it would compel me to want people to know it. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Have you put your trust in him? Now, that's a wonderful promise and all, but then Jesus continued to say what happens if you don't believe, if you refuse to believe, if you reject. Let's read verse 16 again. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That promise is for all of us here. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This then is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Jesus is offering an invitation He says, I came into this world. I am the light of the world. Receive me as the light of the world. But if you reject me, realize that you're under judgment. And the reason you're under judgment is you're still in your sin because through Christ our sins are removed. But Jesus did indeed make this claim that he he was it. He was the only way of salvation. He alone is the Son of God. Second reason I'm convinced it's true is that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus The Old Testament, as we have it, Genesis to Malachi in our Bibles, covers about 4,000 years of biblical history, and from the beginning to the end, it all points to Jesus. I've talked before about the unity of the Bible a couple weeks ago, why I believe it's the Word of God, but the Bible from beginning to end, it points to Jesus. It is all over the place. I think anyone that reads the Bible with an open heart and and looking at all will see Jesus. Oh, there he is again. There he is again. Because God did not want us to miss this thing. Starting early in Genesis, the first few chapters, we read about a sacrificial system, sacrificing animals. It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice an animal, a perfect animal, so that the sinless animal was dying for the one offering it, the sinner. So you come as a sinner and you say, okay, and the wages of sin is death, so there's a death. It's pointing to Jesus. But it's found throughout the pages of the Bible. Go to the story of the Passover. If you apply the blood of the door to the house, then the angel of death was going to pass by in Egypt, and if he'd see the blood, he'd pass over that door, and everyone in it would live. The same thing's true to us today. If you have the blood of Christ sprinkled on the door of your heart, then you have eternal life. The angel of death will pass you by, and the stories and the lessons, the entire temple system points to Jesus. He himself is the, the, the very curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer area there, Jesus himself was the one who was torn so that we could access God the Father. And and I could talk about this for a year. It's all over the place. This is why, by the way, I encourage you to read your Bible because you, you see it, it just, wow. I mean, God did not want us to miss this thing. 
And so Paul wrote in Acts 10.43, he said, all the prophets testify about him. That through his name, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. By the way, you see all these same themes. It's about Jesus. It's about belief. It's about forgiveness of sin. All the prophets, every prophet in the Bible spoke about Jesus. All of them did. They all pointed because God did not want us to miss this. The last chapter of the book of Luke has an interesting story of a couple of disciples of Jesus who decided to take a trip from Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus on the very day Jesus had risen from the dead. And these two disciples, they weren't among the 12 apostles, but these two disciples were discouraged. And as they started to walk along, Jesus kind of just appeared and started walking with them. And Jesus was overhearing their conversation. What are you guys talking about? And they were depressed. They said this, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened these last few days? I mean, they were referring to the crucifixion and, and all. Are you the only one that doesn't know? To me, it's the funniest question in the Bible every time I read that. I mean, you're asking Jesus, do you not know what happened in Jerusalem the last three days? And he was the one that was hanging on the cross. You know, they, they didn't recognize him. They were kept from seeing him. And so Jesus asked them to explain, yeah, what was the Messiah? And we were sure he was the one. And, and he was going to set up his kingdom and everything. But, but he, he was crucified. The religious leaders and, and, and the Romans, they put him to death on a cross. And he was buried. But, but an interesting thing happened. This morning, some women had gone to the tomb and they said he's alive. But these two didn't believe it. They're leaving Jerusalem. They didn't believe this story. They're on their way. Goodbye. For three years, I've followed Jesus. And then we read, Jesus began to speak in Luke 24, 27. It says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. He starts with Moses. That's like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He starts there, and he began to go through the, the whole Old Testament. This is what's going to happen to the Messiah. This was going to happen. Don't you realize what this was about? This thing over here that's pointing to the Messiah. You guys are so blind. He just, for hours he talked to them until they got to their destination. Until he finally revealed himself to them and then he disappeared. And these two guys went immediately turned around. Even though it was late, they turned back to the 12 apostles or the 11 and explained what had happened. But all the scripture points to Jesus and so there's, there's no one else. It all points there to him. But there's a third reason why I'm, I'm convinced he's the way, the truth, and the life. Besides the fact he claimed it and the entire uh, Old Testament points to him. And by the way, that includes all the prophecies about him, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, where he'd be born, where he would die, where he would live. You know, in the Old Testament, it indicates that Jesus would kind of come out of three different places. It says Bethlehem. He, he was going to come out of Nazareth, or be called a Nazarite, and then he would be coming out of Egypt. So which is right? Well, all three were right. No one could have known that. He just fulfilled all these things. It's all, it all points to Jesus. But the third reason is that I believe he alone is qualified to be our Savior, let me talk about this for a moment, the need for a savior or a uh, rescuer, someone to deliver us or whatever. I think there are two ways in which people think you, you can get to heaven. One of them is that you are going to make your own case before God. 
So you think that you can stand before a holy God and make a case for why you're good enough to get into heaven, which is the perfect place. But most people, I mean, this is what they think. They think they can save themselves. Again, they think that God kind of grades on a curve, and if you're in the upper half, if you're not like Hitler, if you're not a really, really bad person, you're qualified to go to heaven. Now, I can tell you that the Bible makes it clear none of us are good enough. None are righteous, not even one. We all fail. Heaven's perfect. We're not perfect. We're excluded from going there. But that doesn't mean people won't try because most people, I think, think I'm, I'm the master of my own destiny. I will save myself. I'll do so by being the, the best person I can be and hope that it's good enough. The other option, the only other option is you need a savior. You need someone to come and rescue you because you can't fix it yourself. Now, that's the camp I'm in because I'm of the opinion that your good deeds don't erase your bad. They don't. I mean, it's nice to be a good person, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't erase the fact you've done wrong. Even in our judicial system, we know that's true, right? You get pulled over for something. Maybe you're riding down High Street here in Morgantown and you run over somebody and you're in big trouble. So you stand before the judge and the judge says, you're guilty, and you say, I know I'm guilty, but just so you know, I'm a good person. I do good deeds. I go to church. I even give to charities. If I saw an elderly person wanting to walk across the street, I'd be the one to just slow them, walk them across. I'm a good person. So what do you think about kind of doing away with that little uh, ticket? I think once he stopped laughing, he'd say, rest this guy. Our good doesn't erase the bad. It's nice that we do good. It just doesn't erase the bad. It doesn't remove it. Now, I admit that sometimes good things we do factor into how bad your sentence might be. Someone might, you know, might get a worse sentence, but you're guilty. It doesn't remove it. And even as, as Christians, if we're forgiven of our sin, um, or I'm sorry, not if we're forgiven of our sin. If we're not, if we're, if we're kind of good people or whatever, and we do good deeds, we're still sinners who do good deeds. It doesn't fix that. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. It's like you're offering wonderful good things to God with filthy hands. Uh, the, the issue is you've got to get rid of the sin. That's what I'm saying. You can't just pile on good works. You've got to get rid of it. And you can't get rid of it because we are the problem. I can't fix my own sinfulness. I've challenged you before. Try to do it for a day. Okay, today, no bad thoughts, no bad words, no bad deeds. Let's see how long you get in your day. We can't fix what we are. We're sinners. And that's why I'm suggesting, no, we need, we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. And if we're going to have someone that's going to rescue us, they need to be qualified to do so. What would be the qualifications of someone that could save us? Number one, from my perspective, they'd have to be without sin themselves. Otherwise, they're disqualified. If Jesus had sinned even one time, he'd be disqualified. Why? Because he'd have his own problem. But he was without sin. He'd also, from my perspective, have to be God. Because even if a, a person could live a sinless life, and die for someone else or pay the penalty for someone else. They can only die for one person, but God, I don't know how it works exactly, but Christ was able to die for the sins of the whole world through his act. I, again, I don't know exactly how it works, but only God could do it. No one else would be able to do this. 
And it's also significant that what he did had to fit the crime perfectly or else it wouldn't work. You see, what we're saying here is as sinners, God has to judge all of our sin. And, and so justice of God requires, a, you just got to be judged for all of it because that's the justice of God. But if someone could come in and take the penalty for you, then you could be set free, right? I mean, if, if I did indeed kill someone driving the way I did and there was a million-dollar fine, I'd be in trouble. Uh, I couldn't write the check for a million dollars, but if someone else could, I'd be forgiven. They'd pay the debt, I'd go free. That's what we believe Jesus did on the cross. He died in our place and for our sin. But why was it a death? And it's because that's what the penalty for sin is. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God told Adam and Eve, the day you eat from that, you're going to die. And, and death back then and now is th threefold. It's not just physical death. Death in the Bible is physical death, spiritual death, which is a separation between people and God, and eternal death. If that separation doesn't get fixed in this life, it extends to the next. So there's physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. Adam and Eve got all three of them, and they, they died, and so will we. It's proof that we're all sinners. But if, if that's the penalty for sin, then the solution is then someone has to die. Didn't the Apostle Paul say the wages of sin is death? You work a job, you get your wage, you're not surprised. You got paid. You got paid what you deserved. What is the wages of sin? Death. So Christ died. It's a simple answer. It's why he died. And then he rose from the dead, which is a huge part of the story, because if he stayed in the ground, we'd all be, it'd be over for all of us. It would have showed that the, the weight of sin was too great. It would have showed that there were too many sins or the sins were too bad. You know, it would have, it would have indicated that death was too strong because the wages of sin is death. So Jesus saw both of them. He came to remove the sin from us. He came to die and rise again from the dead. But he did both of those things. And it shows that God accepted the payment. And so in Romans 10.9, we read, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that is a reference to his deity, the Old Testament name Yahweh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God and God the Son, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be rescued. You put your trust in the one who defeated both sin and death and by virtue of the resurrection, then we are saved. Now, when I put it all together, I say, with whom can we compare Christ? Who has these credentials? Who, who else could save us? No one else could. And of course, Jesus claimed, even when he walked the earth, that he was God. People say, oh, Jesus didn't say that. Yes, he did. In many different ways, he said it. Like in John 8, 58 and 59, we read, Jesus said to them, He's talking to the religious leaders. He say, said, I assure you, there's that phrase again, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. At that, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple complex. He, Jesus was claiming that he pre-existed Abraham. That's a big deal enough. But then he said, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. He was claiming the Old Testament name for God for himself. My study Bible even has a little note there saying that it refers to how God introduced himself to Moses in the Old Testament. I am that I am. It's God's name. And Jesus says, before Abraham was I, I am. And so, 
what is the response we have? Would be to turn to him. Because God made the sinless one, in a sense, a sinner for us, so that we could be declared righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sinless one took upon himself the sin of the world and was declared a sinner, and he paid the price so that you could be declared righteous as Jesus in the eyes of God. That's how you can get to heaven. The sins are gone. They're removed. He took them away. All the charges have been dismissed because Jesus paid the price, so he alone is qualified. So let me get to the, maybe the last thing here about this. Um, Jesus, Jesus is able to take care of our uh, death problem because he alone is qualified, because he alone defeated death. And so I would turn to Jesus to take care of this problem, right? I mean, if, if you want... If you want help in an area, you go to an expert in the area. If it's a mechanic, you go to a mechanic. If you have a medical thing, go to a doctor, a nurse, whatever. I'm suggesting we turn to Jesus because he alone defeated sin and death. And this is why he made this claim in John 11:25. Jesus said to her, he was speaking to Martha at this time, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. That's his claim. I'm, I'm the source of life, and I'm the source of the resurrection life. But let me add one last thing here in terms of just the weight of this. I've mentioned three things so far. The four, let me mention one last thing. First of all, he claimed to be the only way. Second, the Old Testament points to Jesus. Third, I think he alone is qualified. But the last point I just want to make, it's more subjective, maybe not at the same level as these others, but that Jesus changes lives. And over the years, uh, I'm persuaded that it's true because Jesus, it, it works. Christianity works. Jesus has changed lives. And I've watched it happen time and time again. I've seen people before my very eyes be transformed, saved, literally. As, as they were sitting there, it's like, wow. Remember the first young man that came to faith in Christ here in the church when I moved here in 85? We were just talking about Jesus and the gospel, and we were talking about Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, how he was the... The, the Lamb of God and everything else, and just in the middle of a sentence, I was in the middle of a sentence, this guy all of a sudden blurted out, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. He died for me. Jesus died for me. And, and he, he was just almost spinning with this knowledge. Jesus, Jesus died for me. He kept saying it over and over again. He called his mom that afternoon. He said, Mom, I, I can't believe it. Jesus died for me. His mom said, well, of course he died for you. You've known that your whole life. No, he said, I, I never knew it. He knew it, he just didn't know it. And he was saved in that moment. I think of this girl at the mountain there when I was uh, going on campus sometimes to share the gospel at the student union here at West Virginia University. And we were, I was with another guy and we were just talking with people about how they can know for sure they're going to heaven based on what the Bible says. And we walked up to this girl that was sitting alone and I explained, you know, we're just talking to people about how to know for sure you can go to heaven when you die according to what the Bible says. And she said, I was just praying this very moment that God would send someone to tell me what I needed to do. Never had that happen before. She was in the middle of a prayer. Send somebody to explain what it means to be a Christian. And I shared the gospel with her, and she just began weeping. And her life was changed in a moment. And, and 
Our lives are changed. You, you have been changed if you put your faith in Christ. And it's wonderful because God does something miraculous. This isn't just believe this and, and you're a Christian or whatever. He changes us. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Look, new things have come. If you're in Christ, you are like a new creation by the very power of the words of the gospel. Just like the words in Genesis brought everything out of nothing. God said, let there be light. He just spoke it, and it came into being. If anyone is in Christ, they respond to the gospel message that, that it's the power to save them. Paul put it this way in Romans 1.16. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this message because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The word power in this verse comes from the Greek word for dynamite. And this message saves people, it rescues people, not just for the future, but in this life. So many things happen when you put your faith in Christ. You're, you're adopted into God's family. You're transferred into Christ's kingdom, which is called the kingdom of light. You receive the free gift of eternal life. You are placed into a spiritual family. You receive a spiritual gift or an enablement. The Spirit of God himself comes to live within you, and the list goes on and on and on. You're forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. You are different. You are changed. And one of the best evidences for Christ is Christians. So let me give you some applications here, two applications depending on where you are. Again, I'm convinced Jesus is the answer. He claimed it. The Old Testament proves it. He alone was qualified. Lives have been changed. The first application is for some of you that maybe have never put your trust in Christ, and I invite you to do so. Has there come a point in your life where you've acknowledged, I, I know I sin, I can't fix it, I need a, a rescuer, I need to be rescued. And I believe you sent your son. You know, most people do this through a prayer, I believe you sent your son, and he died for me. And he rose from the dead. And you, God, have said that if I put my faith in your son, you'd give me eternal life. You know, just claim John 3.16. Whoever believes in him puts their trust in him. And if you've never done it, I encourage you to do that. Because in Christ is life. Apart from Christ, there's not. In 1 John 5.11-13, we read, This is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know you have eternal life, and we can know by putting our faith in Christ. If you're already a Christian here today, I want to remind us that we're ambassadors for Christ. Reference I'd encourage you to look up is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21. But Paul said that. Don't you know that you, you were reconciled to God and now you've been given the message of reconciliation. And we're ambassadors for Christ. Now, I realize that sharing our faith is a difficult thing to do. And so I'd encourage you maybe to take smaller steps. For some of you, just pray for opportunities. Just say, God, you know, would you give me opportunities to share my faith? That just would be a good step for some of you. Some of you, it's maybe just know your own story. Be, be ready to share what happened to you. You know, you were going your way and you met someone and they talked about how you've sinned and you realized it was true and you said yes to Jesus and your life changed, something like that. But know your story. Third is just know the message. And around here I talk about it in terms of the problem, the solution, and the response. The problem is sin. That's what we're fixing. The solution is Jesus. 
because of who he is and what he came to do. And the response God's looking for is faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. Problem is sin. Solution is Jesus. The response is faith. And finally, I want to encourage you to invest in relationships. And when you have opportunity, maybe invite people to either come to church or some event where they'll hear the gospel, where because of your friendship with them, someone will be one to faith in Christ. I encourage you to take one of these steps. Let's pray. Father, we're just so undeserving of your great kindness toward us and and this amazing plan to send your son. It's just, just so remarkable. But thank you, Lord, that Jesus died for us so that through faith in him we could have life. And what an amazing, amazing thing you've done. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.